0: What do you love about music?
1: To begin with, everything.
2: A great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
3: Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic
4: at the Chicago Sun-Times, and I'm Greg Cut. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. And Jim, tonight on the world's only rock and roll talk show, I love this time of year. Summer is in the air. Festival season's almost upon us here in Chicago. Big records are starting to roll out. Albums are uh, falling
3: out of the trees, just
4: like Keith Richards. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about Keith Richards in a moment, falling out of a tree, believe it or not. But uh, big records, too, as you mentioned. The Red Hot Chili Peppers. What happened? 28 songs, a double CD. It was supposed to be Big, big record. They had to cut it down. It was supposed to be a triple CD. They've gone in the studio with Rick
3: Rubin. A couple of really other interesting pairings, uh, great producers and great artists. We're going to talk about those records too but first, as always on Sound Opinions we have some news alright Billboard Magazine, which is nothing less than the bible of the record industry, is calling this, quote, a case that could seismically alter the way labels and artists Share the revenues from downloaded music. There are two bands that have filed a lawsuit against Sony BMG, the record, one of uh, several remaining record conglomerates. There's only four super companies now, really, that control most of the music industry. The Allman Brothers and Rockford, Illinois' own Cheap Trick have filed a class action suit, which is seeking $25 million in damages against their label, saying that they are getting shortchanged on their cut of the profits from 99 cents per song digital downloads, which is rapidly becoming the prominent means of distribution for music in the music industry. We decided to talk to Dave Fry, who is the manager of Cheap Trick, and he's uh manager of the Ramones late in their career and overseeing the Ramones catalog now still.
4: Dave, welcome to Sound Opinions.
5: Thank you very much. i honored to uh, be on the show with you guys.
4: So, Dave, what's Sony BMG is doing to you guys? I mean, clearly you think that's a crime.
5: Um, I don't know about crime, but it, <laughs> we, we don't feel it's right. Um,
3: well, yeah. okay, take us through. Let's give listeners a primer, Dave, because it's always revealing when you look at how the pie chart of the CD, or in this case we have a new paradigm, the pie chart of the digital download, how that's divided. What is Cheap Trick's standard royalty rate on something like a song like Surrender?
5: Well, yeah, there's 99 cents a tune. Apple pays 70 cents to the label.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: The label takes off 25% as a new technology charge because they're developing this, you know, they're, they're putting in all this infrastructure to create this new delivery service. Like, you know, they have to retool the plant and take out all the vinyl-making machines and put in CD burners instead. Right. Or that type of thing. In fact, CDs is still a new media for both Cheap Trick and the Ramones. I <laughs> work for the Ramones, too. Um, Introduced in
4: 1990, 1989. Yes, you're yeah. still getting paid at the new media rate, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah,
5: I think it was 87 or 88. 87, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, CDs are still a new media for us. But basically, uh, the, you know, there's the new media deduction. Then there's a container deduction of 25%. I'm not sure what... A container isn't a download, but um, yeah, there's
3: no there's no packaging. Well, really? I'm no looking. I, I'm
5: I'm willing to learn about it, maybe yeah. in this lawsuit. <laughs> and also, there's a there's a breakage deduction too, <laughs> which is between ten and fifteen percent for Ramones. It's ten, and for some reason, for Cheap Trick, it's fifteen.
4: Wow. So and, you're getting um, you're getting charged for packaging and for breakage of an right. MP3 file. Well, container. Yeah, like container. container. Yeah, we yeah, don't know what container container is. <laughs> Yeah.
5: yeah, you got to get this right.
4: That's oh breakage. Wow, how does an MP3 break? <laughs> so, okay, somebody goes into a store and buys a uh, a cheap trick CD with your greatest hits on it, all of which have right. been paid for many times over. Fifteen bucks for that CD. Yep. Uh, what percentage of that fifteen dollars actually gets into the band's pocket?
5: About ten percent.
4: And essentially, what you're saying is, what would be a fair rate on a ninety-nine cent digital download of of a song like "Surrender"? that has been paid for many, many times over by the band at this point. What's a fair Are you rate? thinking
5: 10%? Well, yeah, I mean, no, something more than what it is.
3: Basically, it's a dollar. It's 99 cents. So you'd be making about a dime a song, but you're making 4.5 cents. Right. Yeah, I mean, that would seem to make sense. If only 70 cents goes from Apple to the record company, and you guys get a dime, they're still making 60 cents. Yeah. That's the bigger bigger piece of the pot. Bigger than Apple, bigger than the artist. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's extraordinary. So so well, Dave. What motivated you guys to file this lawsuit?
5: Um, long story. I'm old friends with uh, Bert Holman, who's the manager of the Almond Brothers. And basically, I was I went to the Beacon and I was talking to Bert about this. And he said, you know, I just went through our statement, and we we're basically finishing each other's sentences. Mm. And a few nights later, this litigator showed up who said, you know what, you guys got a big point. And then they then they said, you know, what, we'll take this on and we'll do this pro bono.
6: Wow. And we're doing
5: great. it in behalf of all the artists on Sony. That have a contract that predates two thousand and two mm. and and if we win, anybody that wants to can opt in and get their share of the
3: settlement, and you guys are seeking twenty five million in damages. is that right
5: well that 's in behalf of all the artists on Sony, yeah, so that 's Dylan and Springsteen and Janice
4: when you think about that, even that 's low. <laughs> You know. Yeah,
5: possibly, yeah.
4: Well, if nothing else, this lawsuit, I think, is going to wake the record companies up that they have to revise the way they're figuring out figures for these this so-called new media, which is no longer so new. It happens to be the one revenue stream that actually shows potential for growth, where CD sales are declining year after year. Digital download sales are exponentially increasing every year, and meanwhile, they're holding on to these sort of draconian royalty rates. So i, I got a feeling, Dave, if nothing else, this lawsuit is going to prompt the record industry to sort of look at itself.
5: Yeah, I hope, I really do hope that it has some kind of end positive uh, result.
4: Well, thank you for taking the
3: time, Dave. I want to note prominently here that Sony BMG has declined to comment on your lawsuit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a market!
4: Keith Richards uh, imitating an orangutan on his vacation (laughs) not just in a Rolling Stones song We're laughing about this, but for a while there, I think we were all in pins and needles because Keith Richards injured himself while on vacation in Fiji. It's not clear exactly how, but one of the reports says that the death-defying Keith Richards fell from a coconut tree and hurt his head. He fell out of a tree. That would hurt. Well,
3: but there's the alternate explanation is that he fell off a personal watercraft. We don't really know. (laughs) The Stones camp is keeping mum on this, but just, you know, we don't wish ill upon Keith Richards. We're sorry he hurt himself. We like Keith Richards, but... Keith Richards falling out of a tree. is just too rich. He, he, to he, can't, he can't go that way. This guy's more resilient than a cockroach. And I say that with yeah, all that due respect. But, you know, he has had numerous odd freakish accidents. In 1998, yeah. he broke three ribs and yeah. punctured a lung. This is rich, too. Falling from a ladder while reaching for a book in his library. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, never mind who knew Keith Richards liked coconuts. Who the hell knew Keith Richards had a library and could read and would actually want to climb to the
4: top for something that wasn't like Penthouse Magazine? I mean, you see, Jim, the sub- The context for all of this is that he may have given up drugs, but he's still drinking copiously. I mean, he told me last time I interviewed him, he's drinking a fifth of vodka every day. Yeah. Well, it medicinal purposes. That's (laughs) healthy for him. I'd be falling off ladders and falling out of palm trees, too, (laughs) if I was drinking a fifth of alcohol every day, as Keith apparently is still doing. But uh, the good news is that Keith is out of a uh, New Zealand hospital after being checked in there after this accident in the Fiji Islands. He's out of the hospital the blogosphere is going wild with rumors that Richard suffered more serious damage, that there may be brain surgery in his future, that he's suffering uh, headaches. None of this can be confirmed. I can only say we wish Keith Richards the best, you know. Yeah, Mick and, and Jagger, however, can fall <laughs> off a cliff as far as I'm concerned. I remember
0: when I remember I remember when I lost my
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about new albums from Paul Simon and Brian Eno, Alejandro Escovedo, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But first, this record has been tearing up the English pop charts number one for five weeks.
4: All right, tell me you're not instantly hooked. You're instantly in the mood of, like, what is that? That is the best song I've heard this year. That's an incredible single. Single of the year so far. It's called Crazy. It's the first single from the Gnarls Barkley debut album called Saint Elsewhere. It is all over the charts in England. In fact, it debuted at number one on the charts in the U.K., Based solely on digital sales. We were just talking with Dan first Fry, ever. the manager of Cheap Trick, about the increasing power of digital downloads as a primary vehicle for selling music. First time and ever. there's your example.
3: Like when the Beatles replaced suddenly, you know, your Frank Sinatra's and your Perry Como's on the charts. This is the
4: first time people put a record at number one, just digital downloads. Exactly. It's sweeping England is uh, soon to be released in the United States. What is Gnarls Barkley? Where did this song come from? Gnarls Barkley, essentially a collaboration between a rapper vocalist named CeeLo and a DJ named Danger Mouse. CeeLo, a primary member in the rap group Goody Mob from Atlanta, also a couple of incredible solo albums. Uh, Thomas Calloway, childhood friend of Dre from OutKast from Atlanta, part southern preacher, part cartoon character, a spiritualist, a surrealist, yeah. and a guy, gospel
3: guess, singer, a rapper. A guy who sings as much as he raps. Have, absolutely. Partners with this guy, Brian Burton, who's best known as Danger Mouse, definitely the most inventive producer on the current hip hop scene, best known for the illegal but brilliant combination
4: of Jay-Z's black album and the Beatles' white album to equal the grey album. And don't forget Burton worked on uh, that Grammy-winning album by the Gorillas, Demon Days. That was Danger Mouse's uh, production job on that. Also did an incredible job with MF Doom on the Danger Doom record. Burton, aka Danger Mouse, seems to find new collaborators every year to work on exciting new projects that sound nothing like what he's done before and has done it once again with CeeLo on this Gnarls Barkley record. Now they would have us believe that Gnarls Barkley is in fact this mysterious
3: musical Svengali who was a great friend of the late rock critic Lester Bangs, has been a lover of Mariah Carey and Janet Jackson, and happened to have taught Kraftwerk how to speak English. They have this long, elaborate bio, which is their official Atlantic Records biography. None of it's true. It's clearly these two guys messing around in the
4: studio. Let's play a little something, and then we're going to give our thoughts on this record. We decided on uh, Smiley Faces, which is one of many great tracks from the St. Elsewhere record by Narles Barkley on Sound Opinions.
0: What did you do? What did you say? Or did you walk or did you run? And your weakness what made you strong Oh, see oh.
3: Greg, I have a theory about this record. Saint Elsewhere is kind of in the name and also in the title of the single, Crazy. I think that this is a concept album musing on what is sane and what is crazy. Mm. What do those two words mean in a world that's schizophrenic by nature? Danger Mouse being one of the great artists who is working schizophrenia as a medium. doesn't matter what the genre is. There's an electro-pop cover of the great Violent Femmes song, um, Gone Daddy Gone. There's this weird ballad, Just a Thought, which is uh, amusing on on suicide. You know, there's Psychedelic Soul, like the great Isaac Hayes chocolate-covered psychedelic classics. I mean, everything under the sun is, is on this record.
4: Yeah, I agree with you. There's an element of surrealism that is really inviting. I think Danger Mouse is an expert in this area. Especially after his collaboration with MF Doom, the cartoon stuff that you quoted—you know—you can hear the Damon Albarn gorillas influence there in terms of the bio, the fanciful bio yeah, for this band. Yeah. So they're bringing some of that. And CeeLo, I mean, th- this guy's solo records were just mind-blowing in-, in terms of where he wanted to go with the music. You've Very been championing m- him on Sound Opinions for years. Yeah, people think Outcast is blowing out the boundaries of hip hop. I mean, this guy's solo records have been way beyond Outcast in terms of just their experimentation. You mentioned the song, The Boogie Monster, you know, Ode to a Vampire. Yeah. Uh, he looks in the mirror and says, hey, the monster's me. You know, yeah. I'm this guy who I can't figure out. You know, I'm this crazy guy. And you still wonder
3: on the same par, uh, not quite as great a talent as Danger Mouse is as a producer, Mm -hmm. but he is a great singer. He can do the soul, R&B thing in a freaky, stylish way. You know, not great by Marvin Gaye standards, but certainly in a Prince, just kind of freak-funk way.
4: Yeah, he's got this southern preacher thing going, and yet he's got this high tenor voice, and yet it's really gravelly at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of, you know, you're you're dealing with with a freak. He was he was in the gospel choir, but at the same time he might have been messing around, uh, you know, with a well, couple the of the pictures, girls on the, the side. He's you know? wearing
3: a blonde mop top wig <laughs> yeah. and these Mr. Magoo glasses. I mean, it looks really freaky and frightening.
4: Yeah, it, it's a really inventive record, and I think that that song "Crazy" is going to be one of the dominant songs of the summer. If, if there's any justice at all in the United States, this song will be a huge summer huge hit. hit it's a summer hit Absolutely. summer hit
3: uh on the patented sound opinions scale of buy it burn it trash it
4: i've got to say this is a buy it record i sure. love this record Greg. sure this is a buy it record all the way and uh we got to have another dose of crazy before we get to some more record reviews we're going to talk about paul simon alejandro escovedo the red hot chili peppers later on in the show but first a dose of crazy from the gnarles barkley record on sound opinions
0: mm-hmm.
6: Watch the sky, happy and go lucky.
0: Fourth of July. How can you live in the northeast? How can you live in the south? How
6: can you build on the banks of a river when the flood water pours from the mouth?
0: How can you be a Christian? How can you be a Jew? How can you be a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu? How can you?
3: That is Paul Simon, the opening track from his new album, Surprise it's called How Can You Live in the Northeast I'm really tempted uh, whenever I mention this record to say Paul Simon and Brian Eno because it is a collaboration between the veteran Baby Boom icon longtime singer songwriter and the producer who may be best known for working with uh, Talking Heads or with U2 or David Bowie also an extraordinary solo artist in his own right Brian Eno the godfather of the ambient movement one of the most fascinating people in rock history I think Uh, one of those guys behind the scenes who 's always been influencing uh, very much what 's gone on in the mainstream even if he may not be as famous as the artist he 's worked with this is an interesting album because it seems to me greg i don 't know if you 'll agree, but it seems that at sixty four years old about to enter an incredible fifth decade as as a huge presence in the pop world. Paul Simon's been uh, pretty much at a loss since the beginning of his fourth decade. Mm. You know, he had that Songs from the Cape Man kind of disastrous foray into musical theater in 1997. 2000's You're the One, his ninth solo album of his career, did better. You know, it it was nominated for Grammys. Some critics liked it, although I will note, neither you nor I uh, liked it when we reviewed it on Sound Opinions. Paul Simon, as a solo artist, has not come anywhere near the peak of those Great songs like "Late in the Evening" and 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover" and "Kodachrome" uh, th- that he had in the early seventies. He's kind of been kind of been lost for for since you know Graceland mm-hmm. and yeah. Rhythm of the Saints. You know, in in eighty six he turns to South Africa for inspiration and and makes that incredible Graceland record. In in ninety he turns to Brazil with Rhythm of the Saints. Where was he going to turn now? The answer is. Brian Eno, who is famous. Uh, I've interviewed Eno at length, as have you. Uh, I've interviewed you, too, about working with Eno. The Edge told me memorably that Eno's role in working with you, too, on those records like Oktung Baby, and Zuropa, would be to erase, literally erase, anything that sounded too much like what U2 had done in the past. And Eno said, you have to understand, there's this huge industry built up around a mega-selling band like U2 that is is it's vested in trying to make U2 continue to sound like U2. And Eno would come in, and he had carte blanche, and he would erase anything that sounded like <laughs> U2. The record company hated him, but U2 welcomed him with open arms. Mm-hmm. Eno is a founder of this philosophy that the recording studio in itself is an instrument, and you should approach it with these oblique strategies. At one point in his career he literally had cards you don't know you know what is working and what's not in a song you would pull out one of these cards and it would make a kind of zen uh (laughs) suggestion like is it finished or does it need the sound of water falling and these would break down these creative blockages in the studio i think it was a brave brave thing for paul simon to turn to a guy like this because simon is notorious as
4: an egotist He likes to be right. I think both guys uh, have a sense of who they are, and God willing, everybody else will follow their lead or else exactly and and Simon is is notorious for that as is Eno, I think to an extent Eno does not truck fools I'm amazed in fact that these two guys actually got along and didn't kill and each made other. a record yeah. uh, out of it well this is you've set it up very well Jim and I think this is a very very intriguing record I think we got to play a track and there's a lot to discuss here uh, I think it's gonna be an interesting uh, debate as to how we feel about this record let me give a little context for this
3: song it's called wartime prayers it's obviously a song about the tragedy of war. It joins, I think, uh, the songs we talked about last week from Neil Young on his new album, Living With War, in being non-judgmental about who's right and who's wrong and talking about people on both sides suffering. Although Simon, as is his wont, <laughs> is a little angrier. He talks about, uh, I think it's a, it's a line about the 9-11 attacks where he's talking about, you know, gone like a memory from the day before the fires. People are hungry for the voice of God. But in the end, he says, you know, wartime prayers in every language spoken for every family scattered and broken. It's, it's a very emotional song. I think uh, it kind of taps into the same vibe of the Sounds of Silence, which he wrote in, in the middle of the, the killing in Vietnam. Uh, here it is on Sound Opinions Wartime Prayers from Paul Simon and Brian Eno.
2: Prayers offered
0: in times of peace Are silent conversation. Appeals
6: for love Or love's release In private invocations But all that is changed now Gone like a memory From the day before the fire People hungry for the voice of God Hear lunatics and lies Wartime prayers, wartime prayers
4: Overtime time prayers from Paul Simon's tenth album, Surprise, and I think the uh, high point of this record. You can hear the dramatic Eno input there, taking that sort of very gentle, wispy ballad and transforming it into this... Very dramatic and beautiful ballad. Uh, yeah, when the
3: gospel choir comes yeah, in, what and, a powerful and, moment. You
4: know, people say, "What do these guys have in common?" Well, Eno and and Simon, I think, both share a real love for for gospel singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that influences on both their records throughout their careers, and you he- really hear it in this beautiful song. War well, Planned and an Prayers. appreciation of rhythm. Absolutely, Simon very underrated in that area. The percolating Brazilian grooves on "Rhythm of the Saints." The percolating South African grooves yeah. on Graceland, <laughs> yeah. you know, as well. Amazing with what he can do with rhythm. Also, the mix, the multi-dimensional mix, foreground, the middle ground, the distant horizon. He'll these instruments in really interesting ways, a- and he's very subtle in the way he does it. This is where I thought he and
3: Simon might clash, because Simon likes his vocal to be front and center and Eno's mixes are famous for the vocal may be subservient to a snare drum mm-hmm. or or an odd guitar part
4: and there's a lot of great odd guitar on this record from Bill Frizzell mm-hmm. Simon as well, Simon a very underrated guitar player does a lot of the guitar playing here allowed mm. Eno to treat his guitars Herbie Hancock in, is, in playing,
3: is playing keyboards and yeah. you have Steve Gadd, longtime time uh, Simon Sideman on, on drums who's considered you know the yeah. preeminent uh, studio drummer of all time so,
4: so the stars were aligned, this record could have been a massive Piece. I think it could have been a, an amazing record, and if every song had been as good as "Wartime Prayers" and a couple of the you're other not, ones, I think you would have knocked it out of the park. You're not gonna. It could have been. You're I, not think, gonna they, do I this, think they. I think they tiptoed around each other oh. too much. I think Eno. Eno, oh. Eno. Eno tiptoed around Simon, and I think Simon. uh oh. it, the Simon ego maybe got in the way a little you're bit here. My heart. Uh, I wish it had been better. You know, you talk about the rhythm. Where's the rhythm in this record, Jim? That's it's what it, I'm. That's well, what it, I'm really it, missing. It, it's, it's the very, ambient percolation. You know, very very subtle, and you know, we get the wispy. The wispy Simon vocals, the gentle melodies, and and, and the songs just wow. sort of sit there, you know. And there, it's a nice bubble bath to be in. But I found myself getting a little antsy listening to this record, saying, "Take me somewhere." What, is there a you full know the moon drama, drama of, you, There's a full moon. So you, so you're saying this record doesn't
3: rock enough? And Jim DeRogatis here is defending a Paul Simon I record. It's like the, the, I just the wanted every, that, it's
4: the topsy turvy universe. Wartime prayers doesn't rock, but it's dramatic and it takes me somewhere. You saw the way he that song transformed itself even in the couple of minutes we were listening to it. And I don't hear that sense of transition on, on a lot of these other songs. They sort of stay in one place. And Eno's Eno's decorations are really pretty. I mean I think he does a tremendous job, uh, very subtle. I think he tiptoed around Simon a little bit too much. I think Simon demanded sort of a dramatic reinvention here. Very similar to what Eno did with Talking Heads hey, I'll very tell you, similar to what he did with U2 he didn't
3: pull it off with Simon I don't know if I agree with that because I think it's a dramatic reinvention I am not a Simon fan you know aside mm-hmm. from a couple of singles from uh, the, the early 70s uh, which I mentioned earlier I like Graceland okay I don't like Rhythm of the Saints and and I, I really don't like Paul Simon my, <laughs> my wife who does is a Simon fan heard me playing this record several times and didn't even realize it was Paul Simon Right? maybe that's why I like it <laughs> (laughs) Uh, But I I don't know what you're talking about, Greg. I I think that all the best Simon traits are here. I'm shocked. I thought you'd be all over this record. And then I think that if the Sound Opinions team was consulted going into this, they'd say, this is one of those ones, Greg's going to like it, Jim's going to say,
4: you know. The fact that 80% of your introduction about a Paul Simon record had to do with Brian Eno makes me wonder if you really... It really mattered whether Paul Simon was on this record or not. No, I think it's irrelevant. (laughs) Talk about the cult of the
3: producer. No, it's a Brian Eno record that Paul
4: Simon happens (laughs) to sing on.
3: exactly. You know, and I I love this record. It's a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned.
4: Yeah, it's three or four good songs. Definitely worth burning, but uh, a snoozy. Snoozy record. Burn it all the way. Wow.
2: From down from telling stories, strolling through the neighborhood.
4: Alejandro Escovedo, The Boxing Mirror, that is a song, Notes on Air, from his new album produced by John Cale. Cale is a hero of Alejandro Escovedo's. Alejandro, when he was growing up in California in the late 60s, went to see the Velvet Underground Play, a band that John Cale co founded, and uh, they remained an inspiration for him uh, throughout his uh, career. When he went to San Francisco in the late 70s, he formed one of the very first punk bands on the West Coast, uh, the Nuns. And went from there to uh, be a founding member of Rank and File, the cow punk band out of California. Also was a key member of the True Believers, a guitar-based band sort of in the mold of the New York Dolls and Mott the Hoople. Uh, two more of his heroes in, uh, in Texas during the mid-80s. A long solo career beginning in the early 90s. The Boxing Mirror, his latest album combining many of the influences that he has shown throughout his career. A little bit of that country influence that he had in Rank and File, a little bit of that punk influence that he had in The Nuns. Later on, went to work with uh, string arrangements and went to one of the best string arrangers in in, in the planet with uh, John Cale, whose viola was a defining instrument in the Velvet Underground. So it it appears to be a a match made in heaven, at least from uh, Escovedo's standpoint, a long-time Singer, songwriter, uh, now based in Texas, and uh, finally coming up with a record where he sort of melds all of the influences throughout his 30-year career into one place at one time. It's called The Boxing Mirror. Here's a track from it reflecting back on his days when he was in his very first band, The Nuns, Sacramento and Polk on Sound Opinions.
2: Sun, my shadows fall night and follows me as to drive your way The trees hang for the branches The moon hangs from the sky Wide lights flat the gutter while a rose climbs up the staircase Falls upon the landing, and falls upon the land And as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome, yeah, I could cry. She really is not taking this, she's like her softly sleeping, undisturbed, and I wish, and I wish my breath, my voice, my touch could awaken her, yeah, awaken her again.
3: That is Sacramento and Polk by Alejandro Escovedo from his new album, The Boxing Mirror. Uh, what was that, the address of where the nuns rehearsed, Greg, in in uh, One of San the Francisco? hotels,
4: one of the sort of dive, cheap, divey hotels in France, <laughs> San Francisco that they used to stay, where a lot of uh, nasty activity was Well, you out. definitely
3: hear that Velvet Underground uh, groove, the rhythm, and the way the guitars just uh, slap you in the face. It's a great track. I have not been a fan of Alejandro Escovedo's solo career, Greg. He's known for those lush strings that you mentioned. I, I just I have an anti-singer-songwriter thing to <laughs> begin with, but I like the Paul Simon record, so I'm not inflexible. It's a little precious sometimes, his lyrics. I like him very much with, when he's uh, paying homage to his Mexican roots and, and bringing in kind of this weird combination of, of uh, Lou Reed circus street hassle with the strings and, and Mexican influences. That's great. So I liked the bands that made him a cult hero, the Nuns, Rank and File, True Believers, been lukewarm on the solo career i think this is his best solo album you hear kale come on loud and strong it rocks really hard but then there's also other stuff like that that song the ladder is a beautiful beautiful uh fairly traditional mexican ballad i think the thing that you forgot to mention in your introduction that is key to why this album works besides john kale is that alejandro survived a life-threatening illness uh just a couple years ago he had uh, hepatitis c broke down in Arizona, I think while on tour, there's a song here uh, that that, that very frighteningly conveys what happened there. It nearly died. There was a 2004 tribute benefit album called Poor Vida, where you had some of the cream of the crop of the roots rock scene of America covering his songs and trying to help him pay his hospital bills. So there's two things happening here. He's working with his hero and, and really getting into that Velvets garage rock drone mode. And he's happy to be alive. It's kind of a theme that runs throughout the whole album gonna learn how to give not to, not how to simply get by or to barely hang on he says uh, close, close to the end in a song called Died a Little Today this is a guy who you know uh, like Keith Richards he's just had uh, you know one of his nine lives uh, wasn't sure he was gonna get the chance and man He's happy to be here and happy to rock.
4: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right about the, uh, the, the recovery from the hepatitis C. He is happy to be alive. You know, he's in his mid-50s. He, kn- he didn't think he was going to get another chance. He literally did not think he was going to be able to play music again two years ago, much less be alive. And in much in the same way that Neil Young seems to have had mm. suddenly a second life after his brain aneurysm of last year or Dylan in 97, uh, yeah, coming off that uh, heart ailment and suddenly making one of the best records of his career. you get got the sense of Escovedo as a man renewed on this record. I'm sensing a new rule. You know, there's that old cliche that death is a good career move in rock and roll. Yeah.
3: But near death is a better living move. Living <laughs> and, and, and
4: making a great albums is an even better move. That's exactly. great. You don't die, you make good art. And you point out the flaws in in his earlier studio career, and I'm inclined to uh, agree with you to an extent. I think the, the live shows have always eclipsed the, the albums. Finally, he got a chance to do a little serious studio time with somebody who really understood him as an artist. And Cale is an admirer of Escovedo's. He recorded a key song on the Por Vita tribute album. He, he clearly admires Escovedo as a songwriter, and he understands what he's trying to get at, because there, he's tried to make these kind of complex records with the the Mexican influences, the string arrangements, the punk side, the country side, how do you meld all, all those things and make it sound coherent? And I think Cale understood that about him, and he got the formula right on this record. Uh, yeah, when you hear over. those
3: guitars uh, uh, roaring like they were on that track we played, you know, there's also you know, uh, Mexican accordion and it mm-hmm. sounds just, you know, like it belongs with those guitars. I don't think that's ever sounded like those things belong together on, a, on an Escovedo record.
4: So I've I've had people email me, Jim, and say, you know, you're, a, you're clearly a fan of Escovedo. You've written about him several times. Where do you start? I'd, I'd say this record. I, I tell hmm. him, get, go out and get the Boxing Mirror because it's probably the best recorded record and the best representation of all the things he's been interested in musically in his career finally nailed in the studio. By all means, see this guy on tour. He's touring again for the first time in many years. Since his uh, Hep C sort of kicked in uh, big time, he's finally able to uh, tour on some with some regularity. And a live show that's definitely worth seeing, the way he combines the punk guitars with the strings. Susan Vells, a uh, longtime uh, member of... Uh, Poy Dog Pondering is a key member of his band and also a member of uh, a key part of this record. Uh, Yeah, plays violin. You hear her her playing. Kale took her out of her comfort zone on this record. Mm. He said, you're going to play some stuff that maybe you don't like. The riff in Deerhead on the Wall was Kale's idea and Vel's, this classically trained musician, was kind of buckling, saying, I'm not sure that sounds very good, but it turned out to be the key hook in the song. Well, that's
3: what Eno and Kale shared in common. Both producers like to kick people out of their comfort zones, Mm -hmm. uh, which is probably why they didn't work together so well but uh, i think it's a buy it record easily yep. on the buy it burn it trash it scale uh, buy it as well for me all right we're gonna take a short break when we come back we're gonna talk about the much anticipated red hot chili peppers double album stadium arcadium and greg is gonna have a desert island jukebox selection oh! on sound opinions on chicago public radio is the red hot chili peppers with the first single from their epic double album stadium arcadium the song is called danny california she is apparently a young woman who last made her appearance in a chili pepper song in californication (laughs) Uh, you know uh anthony kiedis and the chili Peppers sing about basically how inferior life is anywhere else besides venice beach california and how wonderful life is there much is being made of this uh well, A this being originally a triple album, uh they, they recorded some thirty eight songs that they trimmed down to a mere twenty eight on this double record stadium arcadium. Also, they recorded it in a house once owned by Harry Houdini, as if somehow the magic permeated this record. I don't believe that happened at all. I think that the biggest trick that the Red Hot Chili Peppers have ever pulled is making a 23-year career now out of the most marginal and meager of talents. That and the fact that they completely reinvented themselves, it began circa 1990s blood, sugar, sex, magic, where all of a sudden this group that had been punk, funk, Frat party, house party, you know, hard rockin', noisy party meisters suddenly started recording ballads. Now, 18 of the 28 songs on this album I would categorize one degree or another as ballads. That leaves, you know, very little of the party hardy funk. Let's hear an example of a song that is typical. It's called Especially in Michigan on Sound Opinions.
4: Especially in Michigan from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the new album Stadium Arcadium. Anthony Kiedis, a little uh, tribute, a backhanded slap in the face, really, to his uh, his home state of Michigan, Midwesterner in his youth, and moved out to Cali and saw the light and decided that California, their muse, the scene of many, many destructive catastrophes <laughs> in their life as well. I mean, Kiedis has sung very openly about yeah. his abuse of drugs, his catastrophic relationships, the theme of this new album is that Ketus is making the transformation into a more spiritually enlightened human being. I've read that it's inspired
3: by the Kabbalah, That mystical Jewish religious teaching which Madonna's been hyping. I mean, Kiedis, as a lyricist, he has nothing worth saying and certainly nothing that would make you think of the Kabbalah.
4: No, uh, no, you know, I think he shows his true colors in a song like She's Only 18. You know, the barely legal, She's Only 18. I put my lovin' in your oven. I mean, these guys jumped around the stage like a bunch of chimps in the 80s, as you put it, made this remarkable transformation into balladeers. The melodic balladeer side of them is still in full operation on this record. I have a tough time well, swallowing. Yeah. I have a tough time swallowing the the sensitivity <laughs> that they seem to be invincing toward yeah. uh, the opposite gender here. Well, there's um, the song that f- that Flea wrote
3: for Ketis to propose to a right. girlfriend, and then there's oh, it's just it's too much. Now,
4: two points in uh, that I need to make about the Chili Peppers because I'm very dubious about them. They did become a very reliable singles band in the '90s. I think some of the better alternative rock hits. ...of the 90s were written by by the Chili Peppers. Under the Bridge, Scar Tissue, Californication, Give It Away... Those songs didn't sound bad Coming on the radio And in small doses This band can be interesting They've got a few Potential hits On this record But 28 songs Is a lot of songs <laughs> Way more chili peppers Than anybody needs Especially because They keep repeating themselves Oh my god it's It, it really is Kind of a, a very uh, Repetitive record I think this is a big Screw up on the part Of uh, the producer Rick Rubin Who was notorious For his high standards As a songwriting coach I mean he's worked With some of the best He's worked with Johnny Cash He's worked with System of a Down it's a pretty Wide range I mean He's gotten some great work out of the Beastie Boys, for God's sakes, and and the Chili Peppers. He's sort of been their guru. Tom Petty. He got the Chili Peppers on the radio with, with albums like Californication and Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. I think his standards fell down on this record, though. The best part of this record, as far as I'm concerned, is not Anthony Kiedis' lyrics or his newfound sensitivity, but John Frusciante's guitar playing. Yeah. I think he's a remarkable guitar player, and I think he adds a lot to this record. I think guitar players will be listening to this record to hear moments like in uh, the song Turn It Again, the way he sort of just takes that song over, the counter-melody he plays in Desecration Smile. ¶¶ profound, striking guitar
3: moments on this record. Yeah, he's, a, but, he's a really good guitarist Absolutely, up to, uh, up to the equivalent of anybody who ever played with Parliament or Funkadelic mm-hmm. those great psychedelic George Clinton records. Yeah, he's bridging the gap, you know, Hendrix Ernie Isley, yeah. uh, th- that's the mode he's playing. But uh, it's not enough to make you buy this record. Well, it's
4: it's The songwriting isn't there.
3: No, I'm sorry, it's not there. No, there's a couple of moments that, like you said, will sound okay on the radio, but that's like the best you can say about it. And 18 ballads that sound all sort of samey with Ketus's kind of mush mouth vocals and his stupid lyrics and Flea overplaying the bass and the rhythm section stuck in that mid-tempo mode. And Freshanti only let out of his cage once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's just this is a trash it record. I would maybe be on the cusp of saying burn it, but let's face it. You're going to hear enough of it on the radio. You don't need to even own it in any shape or form whether you're
4: buying it or sampling it so, so it's, otherwise trash it and it'll come in through the ether anyway i think there's a couple of burn it moments on on this record but my god i i cannot see anybody spending hard-earned money for this record there's no yeah. way trash it i think 28 songs i can count maybe six yeah that i want to hear again of all the of all the bands to be surviving from the
3: alternative era we get you know, stuck with these guys why why has there been 23 years of red hot chili peppers <laughs>
1: I tell you little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just a castaway,
6: an island lost at sea. You now I'm standing on my own. Standing far from home. Look, come on.
1: You remember we were shipwrecked together? Standing
3: as a far from home. Each week when we have a little bit of room left in the show. Either Greg or I takes a turn at popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, talking about a track that we could not live without. Mr. Cott, it is your turn.
4: Well, Jim, as is our pattern with the DIJs on this show, we want to sort of accomplish more than just play a great record but sort of tie it into something else that happened in the show or should have happened in the show. And, One of the people we wanted to pay tribute to on on Sound Opinions tonight was uh, Phil Walden, who was a major behind-the-scenes player in the music industry for decades. Died at the age of 66 a few weeks ago, perhaps best known as the founder of Capricorn Records in the South, the great Southern rock label. And putting the Allman Brothers on the map was a big contributor into the Jimmy Carter campaign in the mid-70s, and was notable for the way he sort of bridged the gap between Southern Rock, the White House, giving legitimacy to both in some ways. You know, Jimmy yeah. Carter uh, got yeah. a whole new generation of And really, the first time of,
3: you had a, had a Rock figure, you know, being counted as someone who was, you know, could have a, his picture taken next to the president. Absolutely. I mean, that did not happen before.
4: Absolutely. So the guy that discovered Dwayne Allman, not, not a bad legacy, but I think even more importantly, in a lot of ways, the manager of Otis Redding. Walden was very shrewd very canny in the way that he sort of expanded otis redding's career as a soul singer the baby boomer icon soul singer of the 60s Mm. and i think a lot of that has to do with the way phil walden managed redding's career one of the things he did was set up otis redding to play the monterey pop festival in 1967 the summer of love 67 otis redding made his reputation with the elusive white audience. He'd been selling a lot of R&B records to African-Americans in the 60s, but really had not reached that white audience where where the money was, let's yeah. face it, until he played the Monterey Pop Festival and blew people away with that performance. Unfortunately, a few months later, Redding died in that plane crash in December of 67. Ironically, a few weeks later, having his biggest hit of his career, the number one song, uh, Dock of the Bay. But Walden also did another very shrewd thing, and that is put Otis Redding and the entire key players on the Stacks roster, Stacks Records, the famous R&B label out of Memphis for which uh, Redding recorded, got him on the road, had him play Europe in 67, and, and these guys were competing with each other on that on that uh, road trip. It wasn't just a case of, you know, we're all friends here, they mm-hmm. were trying to outdo each other on the stage. <laughs> and preceding Otis Redding on the stage was Sam and Dave, who a lot of people mm. thought one of the best live acts of all time. Sam and Dave just smoking on stage. What could Otis Redding do to top them? Well, Phil Walden had him record a Rolling Stones song. He mm. had him record Satisfaction. You can only imagine how that went over with the European audience. Here's this black, southern R&B artist playing a uh, big rock hit by one of the England's biggest bands at the time, and it went over like gangbusters. He also covered a Beatles song. So Walden kind of cannily... Placing Otis Redding in people's minds with these kind of very smart decisions about that was, what that kind was of songs to record. Walden, not Otis himself, making those decisions? Walden, I would say, he, you know, in a, it was an advisory role in the same way that John Landau has sort of steered Bruce Springsteen's mm. career. I think Walden did the same thing with Otis Redding. Otis Redding, let's not underestimate how smart this guy was, though. Not only did Otis Redding write most of his biggest hits, he also arranged and produced them. I mean, this guy had a tremendous ear for... Horns and how they could be used in a R and B song. I think he revolutionized the way horns sounded and were used on R and B songs. And ever since the uh, Otis Redding model, I think, has been the way horns have been used in R and B. And of course, a one of a kind voice. Absolutely, one of one of the great singers, one of the most expressive singers of all time. But I'm not going to play Satisfaction or his cover of the Beatles' Day Tripper. I'm going to play a song that he wrote, Can't Turn You Loose, and you're going to hear it on that European tour in the spring of '67. He's just been challenged by Sam and Dave. They have come out and smoked that audience. Otis Redding is going to try to one-up Sam and Dave, which was a tough thing to do. But he had a great backing band, Booker T and the MGs. He had a great horn section, and he sped it up, like about to ten times its normal speed. With Al Jackson, sounding like he was pounding nails. This is Can't Turn You Loose, one of Otis Redding's greatest performances from the European Tour of 67 on Sound Opinions. <laughs>
0: Keep the groove going. Keep it going.
1: Don't stop. Keep the groove going. Go. Go. Go.
4: Otis Redding, revving it up with uh, Booker T and the MG's Can't Turn You Loose on the European Tour of 67. Man, that's got me in a great mood, and also putting me in a great mood was this band that uh, is going to perform for us next week. We taped them a
3: couple weeks ago, Art Brute from England. One of your favorite bands of the year. I love this record. Uh, they're fun to talk to, fun to listen to.
4: Absolutely. It's going to be a, a fun show with them, and we're happy to introduce them to uh, a large part of our audience. Their, their record is just now coming out in the United States after being out in England for more than a year. So it'll be fun to uh, have these guys play for us next
3: week. There you go. We've got some thank yous to say on the way out. As always, our executive producer is Tori Malatia. Our managing producer and director is Todd Bachman. Our producer is Matt Spiegel. Associate producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. We get some legal help from Dino Armiro, some technical assistance from Joe DeSoe. And uh, we'd just like to thank you for listening. And see you next week.